Good evening. Welcome to the fourth and last of the LSE Summer School Public Lectures. My name is Robert Faulkner. As you may remember, I was there at the welcome session. I'm glad to be here again. I'm the convener of the Summer School. Uh, the public lecture series of the Summer School, as you will have noticed, is the intellectual highlight of our summer program. Uh, we've had one riveting lecture already, and it's great to see so many of you here tonight, uh, despite the temptations of a classic British summer, <laughs> uh, which I, I can see on Halton Street many are enjoying already. Um, but it gives me great pleasure to open the proceedings tonight and welcome our distinguished speaker on this fourth and last occasion. Our speaker today is Professor Mick Cox, who's been a professor in the International Relations Department since the early 2000s, and I'm very pleased to say he's become a, a dear colleague and friend in the department. Uh, at LSE, Professor Cox co-founded IDEAS, which is our Center for the Study of Diplomacy and Strategy, you could say a kind of an international affairs think tank. And Mick still co-directs the center, which I should mention uh, was recently voted in a global survey of all the world's uh, think tanks, the fourth best university think tank. Now, you might say coming fourth doesn't get you a medal <laughs> these days, Good uh, which, of course, sums up, until yesterday at least, the British team's experience. Um, <laughs> but things are changing on the sportive front, uh, luckily. And I should also perhaps put that achievement in context in the case of ideas, because that survey reviewed and compared 5,300 think tanks in the world. And it should also be noted that ideas has only been in existence since 2008, for just a couple of years. So to have come forth, to have shot up uh, to the fourth most widely regarded, most important and influential think tank of all universities in the world is indeed remarkable. Professor Cox, publications are far too numerous to list them individually, and I'm sure if you're taking his course this week, you will have come across some of those. I just mentioned one book which would be particularly interesting in the context of the lecture today, which is the edited volume on US foreign policy, now in its second edition and fast becoming the authoritative textbook on American foreign policy. Uh, and again, uh, you will have come across this if you're doing international relations in the program. Professor Cox is a widely regarded and influential commentator on American affairs. He uh, is involved with the transatlantic program at Chatham House and has commented and written widely on US foreign policy. And for that reason, not least, we're very pleased to welcome him today to address the following topic. Can the next US president make America great again? I'm not sure whether you know who the next president oh, will be. All right, so stay. <laughs> Stay put for an a enlightening <laughs> lecture there. But um, I think I speak for all in the room. Uh, we're pleased to have you here tonight, and we're looking forward to this lecture. Please join me all in welcoming Professor Cox. Thank you for that very nice introduction, Robert. I'll pay you later. Um, <laughs> Uh, wonderful to be here, to be asked back again to do one of these wonderful lectures. Um, 
in this uh, series, um, and welcome again to all of you to, uh, to the London School of Economics and Political Science. I always stress that, by the way. You can't get LSE and PS on a business card, so we just call it the LSE, but and political science, and international relations, and international history, etc., etc., etc. Like Robert, I've loved being here for the last uh, decade or so, and it's that decade I'll be reflecting on, particularly in relationship to the United States. Uh, my first trip to the United States, by the way, was, uh, well, I suppose emotionally, my first trip to the United States was taken in the 1950s. There I go back a long way. Uh, but my first physical trip to the United States was in the 1985, when I went to San Diego, which many of you may know. And I went, uh, I went there, and somebody, I met a naval officer in San Diego, and he said, welcome to San Diego. The Soviet Union's the Soviet Union's second favourite nuclear target, which, um, because it has such a large military base there, I thought, well, I better go somewhere else. So the following two years later, I went to the College of William and Mary, the wonderful college there, uh, second oldest university in the United States, which is a wonderful place, rather different to San Diego, to those who know Williamsburg, CW. And um, of course, I was on the other side of the Atlantic, close to the Atlantic fleet, and somebody said. Welcome, Professor Cox, to, uh, to, to the Tidewater Peninsula, the Soviet Union's third favorite nuclear target. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, I've been traveling back and forth to the United States over many, many, many years. Uh, I, I think I have some qualifications for speaking about the country, being both a critic but also an admirer of many of the things the United States has achieved over centuries. Uh, it's also the first time I actually started to learn British history when I went to America, by the way. Uh, the Brits stay at home far too much. Well, they don't, of course, because they created an empire. But uh, I must say, the first thing I did really learn about American history, about my history, was an American history, which is a British history. Uh, it's a very intimate one, of course, as we all know. A special relationship, as somebody likes to call it sometimes. Okay, now this is a very difficult lecture to give. I was asked to give a title which was first rejected by Robert on grounds that it was politically incorrect, I suppose, but I don't think so. Uh, I then gave another title which I thought would uh, stimulate a, an audience. And then I, and I looked at the lecture title again. I said, oh my goodness me, what am I supposed to talk about? Um, and and it, it's a difficult lecture at three, at three levels. One is, um, I don't know who will be the next president. Um, uh, um, although, of course, if the, the British Olympic team were voting, it wouldn't be Mitt Romney. Um, Mitt didn't do very well in London, I'm sorry to say. So. If, for all, there are Republicans out there, I know, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm, not so, I'm not sure that his comments about the British ability to organize Olympics is going to lose him many votes in Ohio or Florida, but it uh, didn't do him too, too good over here. So I don't know who's going to be the next president, and that tells us something straight away. This is too damn close to call. Everybody I've spoken to on this just doesn't know. Uh, partisans on either side will say Obama will swing it through because he's, he's a great speech maker and then somebody will say Mitt Romney will win it because uh, the economy is not doing well. We just don't know. It is too damn close to call. So I'm not going to make a prediction. Secondly, the second difficulty of course is very partisan. Anybody who speaks on any politics anywhere, and American politics in particular, of course has, has to own up to partisanship. And look, I'm European, I'm a liberal so I like Obama. Okay, let's get that out of the way straight away. <laughs> Uh, it's not that I have deep dislike for, uh, for Mr. Romney, or uh, uh, the, the Republican nominee, but look, guys, you're in, you're in Europe now. You know, sorry, but this is, this is the way it is over here. Um, 
there may be one or two Mitt Romney fans somewhere in this country or anywhere else in Europe, but I haven't found them over the last couple of years. So uh, I, I will, however, I will, however, be as, uh, as, 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 as try to be as non-partisan as possible. But why not declare one's hand at the very beginning rather than try and kid an intelligent audience like yourself that I'm really, uh, you know, born again Republican. Um, I suppose the third difficulty with the lecture, of course, is the title. I mean, some people might answer, well, who wants America to be great again? Um, it's, it's, a rather lo it's a rather loaded question, isn't it, really? Some people don't want America to be great again. And some people think that America is still great, so why again? Because it's always been great. Um, so anyway, what I was really trying to drive at in the, in the title of, 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 the, of that, uh, of the, for, which is on the poster, with, a, with, by the way, a photograph of me which doesn't look like me, you may have noticed. So who's that young fellow on that poster and who's the old fellow standing in front of you? It's the same person. This is what working at the LSE does for you. <laughs> it's, it's a rapidly... You think you, Robert in 10 years' time will not look like that, by the way. But that photograph will still go up on the same poster. Um, <laughs> So what, I, what was I really driving at in the, uh, in the title? Um, I suppose I'm driving at a very simple problem. Well, it's a very big problem, and it's one to which people don't have an easy answer, let's be honest, as in all international relations. And I suppose the question or questions taken together can be summarized in the following way. Have we witnessed or are we in the midst of a power shift, which is what I'm doing my summer school on, really? Or put it another way, is the American era over? Was the 20th century the first and last American century? As some have used that term to define American influence and power in the post-war period and even after the end of the Cold War in 1989. Or if you want to be historical about it, is, is the United States going the way of Rome downward? The decline and fall of the Roman Empire, of course, was something that the British ruling class in the 19th century took a lot of notice of. They read about it, they thought about it. Uh, one of the great historians of Roman, the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon, of course, wrote about it in 1776, and his book on the decline of the fall of the Roman Empire was almost like a textbook of how to make sure the British Empire didn't decline in the 19th century, learning the lessons of history. Well, I suppose that if you want your historical analogies, there's one for you. If America was the new Rome um, on the Potomac, is it going to go the way of all other empires as in the past? Namely, uh, having had a great period of brilliance, leadership, is it going downwards like all other empires? Is it following the law of history, if you like? Which, of course, is an old, old discussion, but it's come up again in the United States over the last, uh, last few years. Um, is the USA in decline, to summarize it simple? Now, the... The answer given to that question, of course, is controversial, and it's not singular, and there are different answers to it. But I would say, and this is certainly my experience, traveling back and forth to the States and talking to American friends and colleagues and following the academic literature on this, that uh, a new consensus has emerged. Not everybody, but a broad consensus is emerging that um, the answer to all of those questions is, Yes, 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 and yes. That we are witnessing a power shift, yes. Uh, is the American era over, according to many people? Yes. Um, is it going the way of Rome? Not quite. Uh, but it is, in a sense, in a downward trajectory, if you like. Um, the Visigoths and the Huns 
are not going to rape and pillage their way through Washington, uh, so it won't be quite like that. It's, it's decline in the modern form, if you like. And is America in decline? Well, you might, have, you might put some weasel words in the beginning of that relative decline, slow decline, but you know, nonetheless the broad trajectory is taking it away from where it was presumed once to be, particularly after the end of World War II, but certainly at the end of the Cold War, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, America seemed on top of the world to where it now, according to many writers, now is, in, 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 a, in, a, in a much more fragile, problematic position. Indeed, a number of writers have written about this with great eloquence, and, and coming from different political positions, and I'll, I'll at least cite two of those for you. One is uh, both of whom actually are Brits, but both of whom have w now work in the United States, one at, one at Harvard University um, and one at Yale University. The Harvard University professor, of course, is the good Scotsman uh, and apologist of the British Empire and all other empires in history, as far as I can see. Um, empire I love, as Neil Ferguson. Neil um, is a brilliant uh, and pugnacious uh, writer and one who does more to annoy people than anybody else in world history, but let's also be honest, does, does, does a lot to popularise history and get people thinking about it, even if you don't agree with what he has to say, dear Neil. He's just written a book, by the way, called Civilization, which talks about the five apps of what, what made the West great. Now, I remember Neil very well, and I got to know him personally when he was here working with me, uh, well, he's working alongside me, um, in, in my centre, which I also run with another guy, in, um, in the LSE. Neil, Neil was there working on his book and doing his public presentations and the rest. Now, Neil back in 2000 was really, uh, I, well, I can put it quite strongly, I think. I mean, Neil was somebody who thought America was an empire, should be an empire, and should stop worrying about being called an empire. Own up to it, he said. Stop being an empire in denial. You are one. Basically, you're good guys in the world. And go out and beat up the bad guys. Um, now, I think I simplify what he said in his book, necessarily in a short lecture like the one tonight. That was Neil in 2000, a strong advocate of American power, and basically in our, making the argument for American power and the fact that it was an empire thus accepting the reality of its power. Not much talk of decline in 2000 by, by Neil. Now, 10 years on, I mean, Neil is now taking a very different line on, on the world and indeed on the United States within it. And the USA is on the slide. Indeed, Neil, being a great historian, or, or an historian who, who loves great analogies, now says it's not just the United States which is in decline, it is the West more generally. You know, what opened in 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue and and in a sense, white Europeans came to dominate the world for the next 400 years, followed by the Americans after 45. That era of Western domination is now coming to an end. So it's not just the United States as the dominant hegemonic power within the West. It is the West more generally, which he believes is on the slide. Um, now, Neil is a conservative. Um, he once called himself a punk Tory to me, a punk Tory. I'm not quite sure. Tory with a punk hairstyle, if you know what I mean, conservative. Um, Paul Kennedy is of a very different uh, political persuasion uh, and uh, very much more democratic uh, than uh, Republican and certainly in the context of politics in this country, a natural Labour voter as, as Neil is a, is a natural conservative. But Paul Kennedy, if you remember, now working at Yale, 
uh, wrote a great book back in 1987 called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. That was 1987, in which he drew great historical analogies, used about 4,000 footnotes, uh, surveyed the whole history of empires from the Portuguese through the Spaniards through the Dutch to the, actually the British who do decline very well by the way we do it very politely um, we're experts at it apparently for the last 200 years and, um, and Paul as a, as a good historian student of international history believed that in, in effect however great any great power may ever be there are irresistible pressures both domestic and international which will bring all great powers down one day the question is not do you go down, the question is what causes your decline and how well you do it. Do you do it peacefully? Do you do it uh, violently? Uh, do you accept this readily or do you resist this? And he, he formulated this theory of imperial overstretch to kind of capture the general theory of decline that all great powers from the Romans in a sense through to the British and then to the Soviet Union and he believed to the United States when he wrote the book back in 87 would inevitably go the way of all other great powers in the past. Now, of course, for Paul Kennedy, it was a, it was a massively influential and controversial book written in America, of course, in 1987. He got enormous playtime. I remember when I was in the States at the time, you know, I couldn't turn on the television without seeing Paul Kennedy before a Senate Foreign Relations Committee talking about his book. His book provoked an enormous discussion and debate at the time. And he, you know, Republicans attacked him, even some Democrats didn't like what he had to say. It became very much part and parcel then of the elections in the United States when, um, when the Republicans were seeking uh, to, to keep the White House, which they ultimately did. Um, but along came the end of the Cold War in 1989. Along came the collapse of the Soviet sphere in Eastern Europe over the next two years. The collapse of the Warsaw Pact the spread of market economics to the East, Poland's adoption of far-reaching economic market reforms. This was then followed by the uh, Gulf War, the first, the, the massive military rapid destruction of Saddam's armies in Kuwait in 1991. This was then followed by the financial crisis in Japan. And it certainly didn't look to most normal human beings that the world corresponded at all to what Paul Kennedy said in his book, if you like. Decline became deeply unfashionable in the 1990s. Still, Paul Kennedy today, he's had to live through a period of American hegemony, which he never predicted, a period of extended US power, which he, I'm not sure is entirely in favor of, um, through the 1990s, but, oh, thank God, phew, it's declining now 20 years later, if you like, you know. I was wrong the first time round, but I still sold 25 million books. Um, doesn't matter. I'm not making him to be a cynic. I'm the cynic. He's not a cynic at all. Um, but by 2010, Paul can kind of come back. You know, the rise and decline of Paul Kennedy almost in some ways. And Paul comes back with a very strong argument of the natural cycles of history. The West is in decline. And of course, amongst that amongst those Western powers, the United States. But it's not just academics, whether of the Ferguson variety or Paul Kennedy, both great historians in their very different ways and very nice people in, in certain ways. It is the American public. It is the American public that thinks America's in decline. It's what I might call Vox, Vox Americana. Don't believe me, a Brit standing here in the LSE. Don't believe Neil. Don't believe Paul Kennedy. Believe American public opinion polls if you want to. I never do, but unless they agree with me, of course. 
But nonetheless, if you look at the, you know, the majority of American opinion polls over the last year or so, they, t- they do tell a kind of similar story. That Americans are less confident about the future. They think the past is a better place than where we're going to. That their opportunities in the past were greater than what their children's will be in the future. Um, and moreover, and moreover, more connected to the subject tonight, many of them do, when looking at the world today, think that America is no longer number one. You know, a, a poll which came out, I think it was the Marshall Plan poll which came out last year, or maybe the earlier part of this year, I can't remember, Robert, basically said that most, a lot of, a majority of Americans, not all Americans, but a majority of Americans now believe that America was no longer number one in the world and that it was being overtaken or replaced uh, by, other, by other powers, which I'll talk about in a moment in the world. By the way, in the same public opinion poll, what was very interesting in 2011, the same public opinion poll also said something else, which was of great interest, that the majority of Americans now thought that Europe was less important to America than Asia. This compared very dramatically with 2003-2004, the time of the Iraq War, when the majority of Americans thought Europe was far more important, was more of interest and in the American national interest than Asia. So things had changed quite a lot over that 10-year period, according even to the public opinion polls, even, as I say, if you don't want to believe Neil or, or Paul Kennedy. Now, what we're faced with, in a sense, it seems to be, is not necessarily a fact, but we are faced with a debate. Uh, we are not faced with a, an uncontested issue, uh, because no issue is uncontested. What you're faced with, nonetheless, however, is, is, a genuine, is a genuine challenge. And part of the debate which is going on at the moment, both in the United States and, and around uh, the world. And what I want to try and do next, maybe, is to think as to why many people think like this. Uh, what is it that has gone wrong, if you like? Go back to the year 2000. Just go back, if you can remember. I mean, some of you probably can't remember back that far, and I'm not even sure I can now. Um, but if you can go back to the year 2000, we'd had, as I said, the end of the Cold War. Uh, we'd had the collapse of the Soviet Union. We'd had the financial crisis in Japan. We'd had the failure of the European Union to deliver on foreign policy in former Yugoslavia. We'd had eight years of American economic growth under Bill Clinton, not necessarily because of Clinton, but it had coincided with that eight-year period. You know, Bill had delivered on many, many things, particularly jobs and economic security. Uh, Clinton had used American military power abroad, but he'd been deeply reluctant to do so. He had not got America into many wars, and, and certainly not ground troop wars. America seemed to be, broadly speaking, so dominant in the world that nobody could take any threat to it seriously. There were no rivals. Russia was in rapid decline in the 1990s. China was recovering from the crisis of Tiananmen Square. And to put it bluntly, putting it, getting its act together economically uh, before the year 2000. Frankly, I don't know the answer to this question, but I've got a pretty downed idea that if Clinton had been able to stand for a third time, he would have swept away the Republicans in 2000. Um, unfortunately, he was not the <laughs> Democratic nomination. Couldn't be so. It was Al Gore. And while Al Gore has many qualities, charisma is not one of them. Um, and fortunately for President, who became President G.W. Bush, he had a brother in, uh, in Florida who helped. But I won't... 
I don't want to interfere into the internal affairs of another state, as you know. I never make comments about other countries' politics. <clears throat> but that was, the, that was the environment in 2000. That really was the environment in 2000. A kind of self-confident America. Uh, in, 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 in an increasingly globalized world in which democracy was sweeping all before it in one or two countries, maybe not so rapidly but nonetheless this was an era of, of great liberal optimism to put it bluntly uh, measured in economic and political terms the next ten years I wouldn't say are the opposite um, and that's too, too, too dramatic but nonetheless the next ten years look rather different there was a front page cover, I think it was either Time magazine or Newsweek, I can't remember which of the two US magazines, but I remember in 2000, I think two, just the beginning of 2011, it carried a, a front page, and it had 2000, 2010, the decade from hell, the decade from hell. Now you couldn't have said that in 2000, you could say it in 2011, and this of course was going out to a US audience, it's one of the most influential of the American magazines. Uh, which has influence on the way people perceive the world. So the question arises that if we accept this simple characterization of the decade from hell, both for the US and maybe broadly speaking for the West, because it's not just an American story, obviously, as we know in the European Union now, why? What are the kind of deeper reasons we've got to look for these problems which have caused this debate to arise, which have changed the, the, the political dynamics of the discussion in the United States and in the West more generally. Why is the West losing self-confidence, appears to be losing self-confidence, and why do we find American public opinion polls today telling us that they think the past was probably a better place than where the future is going to be? Um, and why do we have historians as you know, eloquently pro-American as Neil Ferguson, as more critical as Paul Kennedy, nonetheless arriving at the same intellectual destination, namely suggesting that the United States is facing some very, very tough times. The 21st century will not be American. Whoever picks it up, we don't know, uh, but nonetheless, it's certainly not going to be an American. The era is over, as Farid Zakaria put it. The American era is over. What are the explanations of this? Now, you can have, of course, good old-fashioned partisan explanations, which I always love. Um, it's either blame George or blame, blame, blame Obama. Um, the blame Bush brigade is obviously very articulate, large and very vocal, um, especially on this side of the Atlantic, but also equally true on the other side of the Atlantic. George Bush, according to George W. Bush, that is not the father, um, not Father Bush and Barbara, um, GW can do no right in the, in the eyes and the perspectives of many people. I mean, the, one of the interesting aspects, you might say, what's going on in America today is the level of ideological divide, I find. It's, it's now one of the most ideologically divided and uh, deeply, uh, deeply schismatic uh, societies or systems, certainly in the political, uh, political debate, that I, I, I find. I mean, it's been bad enough over here for many years. You should have lived under Mrs. Thatcher if you wanted to know real hatred. Um, but nonetheless, in the United States, there is a very strong partisan explanation, basically. George W. Bush was a warmonger, and Barack Obama is an un-American European socialist. Um, un-American because, obviously, he's un-American. European because he sounds like a European. And, um, obviously, a socialist because he believes in, uh, well, health care. <laughs> uh, things like that. Um, 
It's quite actually interesting how the word European has turned into a swear word on, 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 in, amongst certain, certain Republicans, not all Republicans. Um, it's not the, what I would call the old Republican Party I used to know and quite like. Um, you might call this the new Tea Party Republican Party, I don't know. The Republican Party has certainly changed, there's no doubt about that, for all sorts of interesting reasons to do with changing sociology, rise of religion, uh, the importance of the South and the West and all the rest of it in, in the American Republican Party. The old traditional Republican Party no longer exists. But blaming Obama's last four years has become almost an industry. And you can see this on, on the TV ads and the, the kind of killer ads which have been thrown against Obama. Equally, the Democrats, you might say, are equally guilty of the same thing. You know, Everything was great until that damned idiot from Texas who couldn't even, couldn't even you know, row... Um, you know, couldn't speak English properly, who said things like, there is no French word for entrepreneur. Um, you know, it's extraordinary, actually, in the U... And I, I, I'm not adopting these views myself, but it is quite extraordinary, the partisanship in the discussion in the US on this question. And easy, therefore, to, it's a single explanation. Blame GW and every, all his ills and stupidities and inanities and foreign policy... Uh, you know, imbroglios, or, or, or blame Obama for his kind of proto-socialist, near-European, un-American policies, which have failed to uh, do the business and get America out of the, the problems that it faced back in 2009. That's a very symbolic moment when the doors open. If somebody asked me to end my lecture already. I don't know. Let me be blunt about this. I actually do think there's something in the story. But I think it's true of both presidents not just one or the other. Uh, there, seems no, there seems to be no doubt uh, that wh whatever one wants to discuss about the Bush uh, foreign policy, um, nonetheless, it, it, it led America into, uh, and in very difficult circumstances, nobody's doubting you know, the consequence of 9-11. I mean, there are real problems out there. There are real dangerous people. There are some really bad people out there who want to do some very bad things to us and did a very bad thing to the United States in September 2001. Don't get me wrong. Um, but nonetheless, it seems to be pretty self-evident, at least to me it's self-evident, that the, uh, the, what, whatever one thinks of um, the policies pursued, in the end, it left the United States in a, in, 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 a, in a highly problematic position. It lost a lot of standing in the world, and particularly in Europe, but not only in Europe, around the world. Um, and part of, if you like, of Obama's, Obama's uh, project was to restore American standing. I mean, no doubt about that. Um, on the, but put it the other way, I mean, I've stood, I stood in this lecture theatre a few years ago when Obama had just been elected, and it, it was a little bit like a religious revival meeting here on the night that uh, Obama was elected. I thought people were going to start floating whenever they mentioned the word Obama, right? You know, it's a kind of combination of Mahatma Gandhi, Jesus Christ, and uh, Nelson Mandela. I mean, Obama. Oh. Oh. It was a kind of an Obama mania. I mean, you know, in, in, to the degree that, let's be blunt, quite a lot of Europeans kind of had a rather a, a, a snotty attitude towards GW. It was some of it very unfair, actually, and some of it fair. Um, equally true, I mean, Obama could do no wrong. And the, the truth of the matter is that Obama, frankly, cannot walk on water. However much um, quantitative easing there has been, however much government spending there has been, and I don't think he's done a bad job, the realities are that after four years, there's a lot of disappointment about Obama. You could, be, you could say that he was dealt an impossible hand and therefore couldn't solve the problems of either the American economy or America's position in the world. Fair enough. 
But the expectations were so high back in uh, 2008, maybe inevitably there was bound to be failure along the way, but the truth of the matter is that he's disappointed those who supported him most. This is, of course, why this election is going to be so close, or we can't call it yet. Because he's not delivered on the economy in the way that he thought he might do. He's not delivered on a whole bunch of other things. He's clearly alienated certain key allies in the world, including the Israelis, but not only. He's also done quite a lot to upset the Europeans over time. Um, you think Mitt Romney upset the British over the Olympics. You know, Obama's done quite a lot to upset some European allies, uh, too, over the last few years. So, in a way, if, I don't want to be partisan about it. I'd actually say that, in a sense, both, both of the two presidents, in their different ways and for different sets of reasons, have, have um, contributed to a sense of malaise. Either because of the Bush, the Bush adventurous policies in Iraq, with all of its backlash consequences, for the region and indeed for American standing in the world and Obama because he simply not delivered on many of the promises of change which he promised back in 2008 when he was elected with all those brilliant and wonderful speeches he carried us on high therefore the sense of being let down I think has been equally great clearly I don't think one can leave it at that level there are clearly other deeper if you like structural reasons for thinking that uh, this problem is real uh, dare I even use the word globalization at the LSE? We, we almost invented the term. Uh, <laughs> certainly was used here a lot in the 1990s. We even developed a third way to think about globalization. But I think what, the way I take the point here is that what globalization has done has, and I know that there may be a lot of critics of globalization out in this audience, um, uh, perfectly reasonable. There, there's a downside to globalization. But the one thing you can't get, you can't get away from with globalization, it's been a great redistributor of the world's economic assets. I mean, and without globalization, you wouldn't have seen the rise of the BRICS to, to anything like the same degree. You wouldn't have seen, as Fareed Zakaria puts it, the rise of the rest. You know, it is, you've taken advantage of both national circumstance, but you've taken advantage of international economic circumstances as well. And this has helped redistribute some of the world's economic assets. This is why we have talked over the last few years about new actors, not just emerging economies, you know, that, that's kind of dull word, you know, Jim O'Neill, Goldman Sachs, 2001, the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Reasonably stupid idea, but hugely popular as a way of summarizing changes in the shape of the world economy to come. Um, Farid Sakaria, even though he denies America is in decline, he does argue that the rest are rising. And he adds to that list countries such as Turkey, Indonesia, and many, many other new actors in the world economy, such as South Africa. In other words, to put it, put it no there are many more influential actors in the world, one of which, of course, is my next uh, important point of this debate, which is the rise of China as a special case. There is no doubt that China's emergence, for whatever set of reasons, complicated and complex, domestic and international, and in part a very good illustration that sometimes those who are not capitalists can run capitalism better than the capitalist, namely the largest communist party in the world. Think about it. Doesn't it make your head boil? My God. Communists run capitalism better than the capitalist. There you are. Think about that. That, uh, that will drive you to drink if you're a good free marketeer. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that within the framework of globalization, a number of others have emerged, which we've been talking about a lot over the last few days in my class. But the special case here is China. 
You know, if it was just the case of India, I don't think the United States would be so bothered. Frankly, India is a democracy, shares similar kinds of values in some respects. You know, Brazil, you know, very much still, a, very much a, a close relationship with um, with the U.S. Is Russia? Well, Russia. You know, talk about Russia some other time. Um, China's the special case here. You know, it is the communist road to successful capitalism. It's the very size of the, the Chinese economy. It's the very dynamics of the world. It's the international influence of the Chinese economy in Africa. It has now become Japan's biggest trading partner, not the USA. Brazil's biggest trading partner in the world today is not the USA, it is China. Uh, China's loans, its soft loans to African elites, its, its loans uh, to Latin America, the increasing role of Chinese surpluses in buying up the US bonds, you know, 12% of the US debt, etc., 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 etc. China is one of the BRICs, but it's much more important than the other three put together. And it's a special case because it's politically so different. It's a model of development which looks so different. And clearly, and you can see this in the discussions both under Barack Obama and indeed under Mitt Romney, um, China is the, is the issue if you want a foreign policy question to talk around. That's the one. What to do about China? Not to do what about Brazil or maybe Russia, but certainly not India. But it's China, and it is this rise of China coming on top of the other changes in the world economy after two problematic presidencies, when added to a fourth factor, the economic crisis of 2007 and 2008, which has really, in a sense, pulled, if you like, pulled the carpet out from under self-confidence. No, one thing after another. If it hadn't been the Iraq war, if it hadn't been Obama's promises, which were then not fulfilled, okay. But then you've got a redistribution of economic power to other actors, okay. Then you've got the rise of China, a special case of capitalist state, capitalist development, and with a different philosophy of, of international affairs to the United States, okay. Then, to cap it all, to, to really pull the rug from out underneath your self-confidence, you've got the financial and economic crisis of 2007 and 2008. You know, communism failed in 1989. Did capitalism with the free market variety fail in 2007 and 2008? According to many people, yes. Do we have an alternative to, to the market capitalism? I don't think so at the moment. Maybe not, but that's not the issue. The issue is not, is there an alternative to the system we currently have, but that system suffered a grievous bodily blow from which it has not yet recovered politically and ideologically and even economically in the West. And it is this, as much as all the other things which I've mentioned, which have created this sense of malaise. Without the economic crisis, maybe Obama would never have been elected in the first place, in 2008, by the way. The crisis brought him to power... In part, it did. It was the economic crisis that brought him to power. But it is that which he has been singularly unsuccessful at resolving, in, in, as very much as much as any of the European leaders have been singularly unsuccessful at solving the problems here. It is that, not particular personalities or even particular policies, taken, taking all that together, which is creating this debate about American stroke Western decline more generally. Now, when confronted with these, these set of circumstances and backgrounds, of course, there's, an, there's a necessary reaction against that. And, you know, not surprisingly, to each pressure, there's a counter-pressure. To each force, there's a counter-force. And not surprisingly, large numbers of people have come up with different sets of arguments. saying, no, 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 this is far too overdone, all this talk of American decline, you know. 
Um, even Barack Obama, when confronted with the argument very recently in a speech, he said, there are, there are people out there who think America's in decline. They're wrong. We didn't quite explain why they're wrong. Um, he just told them they were wrong, you know. So, you know, he can't accept it, and I'm certain that uh, Mitt Romney um, certainly will not accept it. So there's a psychological resistance to the, to the argument, a very deep psychological resistance. Anybody who's lived in a country which is number one for the better part of 50, 60 years psychologically gets used to being number one. There's a psychology of great powerdom. There's a psychology of hegemony. There's a psychology of superpowerdom. And you get, it's a drug. And it's very difficult to get off it. It's a bit like that drug, and you, you assume it, you believe it, you have to believe it in terms either of... And no American potential presidential candidate is going to get up in front of the American people and say, my fellow Americans, we're in decline. <laughs> yes, good, that will really do well. That'll really go... So politically, it comes impossible to say it as well. Of course, there's also a lot of empirical evidence. You could say, look at the dollar. It is still the dominant currency in the world, more so than ever, given the euro problems. The renminbi isn't going to come up very soon on the horizon. I don't, spend it. I don't suppose anybody thinks the pound is going to replace to become the number one currency of the world. Um, look at the size of the US economy. It is still 20, 22.5% of the world economy. It still has an enormous amount of innovation. It still has, so it still has forms of soft power that no other advanced democratic society has. China would die for some of the soft power America has. Um, and if you don't like soft power because you think that's wimpy and liberal and limp-wristed, how about American hard power, eh? Oh, come on, boys, stand up, flex your muscles. Look, 700 billion Zulus a year, 700 billion dollars a year on national defense. That's... Uh, we can... The Chinese, they've got one aircraft carrier. Pooey. Oh. Kids, we got 11. You know, and our guys go forward fast. You've seen an F-111. That ain't anything, you know. Look at our Marines. They kill. Um, you know, there's an enormous amount of America. Nobody's going to ever catch up with, you know, so from a purely military point of view, this is, this is not even a race. You know, I mean, quite literally, China bought, out a, bought a clapped out old Soviet aircraft carrier. It took 10 years to refurbish it. I don't know if they know what to do with the damn thing now they refurbished it. <laughs> um, you know, the United States has global reach, nobody else does. It is a global player in Europe, it has huge security interests both in the two the two great continents of the South, namely uh, South America and Africa. And by the way, people in Asia demand it to be there because of the fear of China we've seen over the last couple of years. Anyway, if you think America's in decline, look how number of medals we're winning at the Olympics. You know, and it goes on and on and on. You just hope that China doesn't get more than the United States. Then it will prove something, won't it? Um, whoever said Olympics was just about sport? Um, and anyway, a country that could produce iPhones, even if somebody else has to manufacture them cheaply, that is not a country in technological decline. Look at the demographic strengths and look at the power of attraction. Nothing to worry about, basically. So in reaction to the decline debate, you had a kind of counter-response by what I call the new anti-declinists, really, very quickly, Robert, who have kind of said, no, nothing to worry about, we're still number one, you know, we go forward. The only problem of the United States at the moment, at least according to many, of course, some, many on the Republican side, but not only, the only problem is bad leadership. 
If only Barack would get out there and stand up for America, stand up for its allies, and uh, assert American power again. And we'll be back. We'll be back at where we were before, in a position of real and utter strength. Yeah. Now, how to make sense of all this? Who is right in this great debate? Is the glass half empty, which the decliners would say, or increasingly empty, or is it half full? Oh, well, I, I'll, I'll kind of make the argument, really, it's almost by way of a quick conclusion on this one. Firstly, I think there's been an unnecessary polarisation in this discussion. I, I'm about to say that, you know, what the British are like, you know, on the one hand, but on the other, you know. Um, you never meet an Englishman with only one arm, you know, because he can't make a proper lecture, you know. On the one hand, but... You know. um, very bad, bad taste joke, but you get my point. No, but I, I do think there's been an unnecessary polarisation in the debate. You know, the decline is... It must be in decline, and the anti-decline it can't be in decline. Neither can seem to see the other side of the debate. It could well be that both have got something rather importantly right. You know, I mean, I know it sounds impossible to think you might actually hold two contradictory thoughts in the same brain space, but it could well be that the declinists have got some very important things right, and those who say that the United States has some very important assets of power are equally right. And it could well be what we need is a debate which doesn't kind of pose it in that kind of either-or way. But maybe it's the wrong question to pose. Maybe the question is not one, is America in decline? But is it a question about America living, not in a sense as a declining power in the, in the absolute sense, but America living in an increasingly complex world where there are more actors, more voices to take notice of, more international institutions through which you have to operate, more complex security problems to deal with, including, of course, as we now know, Iran, and where no single country can solve anything alone. That's the sort of... It's therefore not just a question of America's in decline, or it's not. It is the world is rapidly changing and becoming an increasingly complex, uncertain place with more actors and where old security answers no longer deal with the new security problems we confront, whether from Afghanistan to Iran, whether it's global warming, whether it's international crime and all the other things we're dealing with and where no single country alone can solve anything alone. That seems to me the kind of way I would pose the problem, even if the two candidates coming into the next presidentials will not. But this leads me really, and this is by way of a near conclusion, Robert, and I will then sit down and try and shut up. Um, if I might put it like this, there poses a, 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 what I call the fundamental existential foreign policy question for America, to which I think there is no easy answer. There, it seems to me there's two underlying ways of thinking about American power in the world. Neither is a straightforward answer, and none answers all the problems. Indeed, they may indeed create more problems. And let me just pose these two, two questions or two, two, two dilemmas. Answer one to America's position in the world was the kind of answer provided by Bill Clinton in the 1990s, and by Obama over the last four years. And that answer is something like this. I summarize it, but for simplification purposes of presentation. Basically, you must accept there are limits to what you can do. You can't do everything. Uh, try and do less rather than do more. Uh, try and reduce the costs of being a great world power. Minimize risk and appeal to the international community and partners to work with you 
to solve all international problems, kind of multilateralist approach. It sounds good, and I actually kind of philosophically go with that. I'm bound to, being an LSE professor, you know. Um, however, there is a downside to that one, which, you know, I don't think you can ignore. You can ignore. Because if you, if you take that approach to world power, as a, as a hegemonic power anyway, you might lose credibility. It's quite possible. You might lose your deterrent power. People might like you but not respect you. Um, you might look soft. And nobody fears you. So that's the, that's the problem arising out of one answer to position of America's power in the world. There's a second answer, of course, and that is the answer which was provided by George W. Bush, at least after 9-11, and which I think is also becoming the framework for Mitt Romney's foreign policy worldview. And that answer is assert American power. Stand up to your enemies. Do not appease them. Diplomacy is the short road to defeat. Confront problems. Don't address their root causes. Work with your keen, clearest allies. Don't try and build partnerships with something as vague, as unclear, as something as nebulous as the international community. What is that? In other words, carry a big stick. I think these are two answers to the American global power problem. The, the problem of the second answer, as we know, it led to Iraq. Stand up to your enemies. Show them who's boss. Make sure that those who fear you, fear you more. Deal with the problem, not through diplomacy, containment or appeasement. Another word for diplomacy in some ways. Deal with it in the way that, in a sense, plays to America's hard power strength. And it brought us Iraq. And I think in Romney's case, it could bring us Iran. Uh, it can't be avoided. Now, is there an easy answer to the Iranian problem? No. But that would, I think, be Romney's. And don't worry, and you don't worry because you're going to become isolated in the problem. In short, what I, I think I'm trying to propose after my lecture is this, that it's not a question whether or not one country is more in decline or less in decline or is in decline, the United States. It is that the world we are now living in is, as I've suggested, more complex, more difficult to resolve, and the problems of this world are never going to be solved by one power alone. However, there is a, a fundamental problem which nobody is going to talk about in this presidential election, that there is no simple answer. If you take the Clinton or what I would call the Obama route, you end up with a lot of problems, even though you might solve some other issues. And if you take the second, what I call Bush-Romney approach, you of asserting power and confronting problems, quite often using hard power answers, you will end up with more conflict and actually, as, an, as a country and as, as, as a superpower, becoming more, more isolated. That, I think, is, 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 the, is the essence of the problem as I would I describe. Is there an answer to any of this? No. You see, I think one of the great things that Robert and I discover when you study IR, there are no clear answers. You are dealing with dilemmas. You are dealing with unanswerables. You're not dealing with clear A or B. You sometimes are dealing with A and B. Um, and that is the problem, it seems to me, confronting the United States today as it goes into its presidential elections. Hugely important elections, by the way. 
not just for America but for the rest of the world because I think there are two foreign policy philosophies contained within Obama and will be contained within the Romney camp and you, you yourselves as intelligent citizens of the world have to come to the conclusion of what answer you would arrive at. It would of course be good to know that such a debate is going to take place over the next few months as we move to November the 4th. I would love to think that uh, Obama and Romney and his, and his supporters will engage in a serious debate in an objective way about some of these classical foreign policy, international relations, world order problems. I don't think they will. Obama will call Mitt Romney a rich guy who saps people. Mitt Romney will call Obama a European socialist. Their followers will spit and bite each other and we'll end up with probably another very, very bad foreign policy debate, sadly enough, because it is a very big question out there that needs an answer. There may be no answer, but perhaps that's a very un-American thing to say because maybe the United States likes clear answers. Unfortunately, as a Brit, I haven't been able to provide one tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, um, okay. I, I think I should have made two announcements before the lecture, which I, I will make now. The first one is, at the LSE, we don't do bland, uncontroversial, and politically correct lectures. Uh, Who was politically correct? Just wanted to clarify that. I forgot to mention that. And I think you've, you've found out why. And the second announcement I should have made is that the lecture is, of course, being recorded. And, oh, I knew that. Uh, that is fine. Good. All right. So we've, we've clarified that. Good. I love the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> of course I meant Freddie of the Queen. Note of the team, uh, we need to look at the editing facility. All right. Yeah, Good. All right. Now, there's another announcement uh, waiting to be made, which is about the reception after this lecture. But I'm going to tell you where it's going to take place after the Q&A. Sure. Not now, in mm. case anyone rushes out desperate for drink. All right, we've got not quite but close to half an hour for Q&A, and as is usual at the LSE, we take any question from the audience, and I'm sure there will be many who will have been provoked by this lecture to sure. come in now. Um, you may feel tempted to make a statement. I'm afraid I will not allow that. This is called the questions and answers session. So please make a question, not a statement. And could you keep it brief? Because we want to get in as many as possible. If there are lots of questions, I'm going to group them into groups of two or three. And if not, then, um, well, give me a show of hands who would like to come in in the first round. And then I can get started on that. All right. Let's start at the bottom, right at the back. The gentleman there. It would be good if you could say who you are, where you're from, and then fire off your question. Uh, my name is Jamil Akeem Favors. Um, I'm from New York. Um, my question is towards 2008. Jobs are at an all-time low. Mortgage crisis. Interna international relations are poor. Yeah. People are losing their homes left and right. Taking Obama out of the equation, do you think that anyone or anything could have turned the situation around in four years? Or do you think is that all economies go through cycles and this was just one of ours? Yeah. Okay, good question. I'll take another question. There was one in the last row there. Thank you. My name is Trevor Bruner. I'm from the uh, United States, Oklahoma. Do you see a way that the United States can reduce the polarization going forward? 
that seems to be a major issue towards getting anything done. Okay, good questions. Great, good. Two Americans, that's excellent. And there's a third one. That's great. I'm Mike, I'm from uh, the US, Arkansas. Hey! <laughs> the great old state of Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, that's what I get often. Uh, my, my, the simple question, what was the title of the lecture that got rejected? <laughs> All right. Is Britain a superpower and why is that a joke? Um... <laughs> that was just on the spur of the moment. This is why Robert always wants to control me because I'm an uncontrollable human being, you know. Um... <laughs> First of all, to our friend from New York, um, and indeed our friend from Oklahoma. Um, look, the situation in 2008, by any stretch of the imagination facing the United States, the series of overlapping problems were just huge. I mean, not only long-term infrastructural problems, problems of health care, uh, bridges that were falling down, all the rest of it. I mean, there were two fundamental problems. One was foreign policy and one was the economy. Uh, the United States, for very varieties of different reasons, which we could go into, but I think I partly explained it, got into a war, frankly, I don't think it should have got involved in, in Iraq. Okay, got rid of a bad guy, but it's left a whole series of problems behind it, let's be honest. And um, Barack Obama was the only senator who, was, uh, who either had the bravery or the tenacity or whatever, the temerity to vote against that war. Um, and I supported him in that. Uh, not many people in the United States at that time were prepared to vote against the war, and he did, and that shows something about his character. Uh, let's be also pretty obvious, he was the first African-American to be elected, and I think this was an extraordinarily strong statement about the strength of America, the importance of the Civil Rights Act. And I even, I even on that night when, when uh, Barack Obama was elected, thought, I thought back to Lyndon Baines Johnson, that, that, fine and, that fine and swearing, drinking Texan who smoked 40 cigarettes a day without even thinking. You know, who, who, who took the Civil Rights Act through a very hostile Congress and against his southern friends. And I thought on that night, you know, this is a great night for Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, and by the way, I'll, 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 I'll be more applauding of both European and British politicians when the first black prime minister is elected in Britain uh, or the black president in, the, in France. So, you know, it was a great state, but the fundamental problems facing the United States then were just huge. Both the economy was in free fall and foreign policy was in free fall. In four years, you do not have enough time to solve all those problems. I accept your point, of course. Um, in fact, I, I'm, this is where my partisanship will begin to show. I've been very good so far, by the way, on this, um, because I do show a little bit of Obama mania myself. Um, I think Obama has, he can't solve the fundamental economic problems in part because the problems were so deep. Partly he's also been prevented by Congress uh, from carrying through legislation. Let's be honest about that as well. Congress has blocked him here, there and everywhere on whole bunches of legislation in the second term, not the first. Um, Obama has also proven, let's be perfectly honest, very tough on foreign policy. Um, I mean, one thing the Republicans have a real problem with going into the 2008s, it seems to me, they can't accuse the Democrats of being softies on foreign policy. You know, I mean, it's not just the question that Obama was got, Osama bin Laden was got, rather. It is that, you know, he has escalated the numbers of drone attacks in Pakistan, and indeed he's increased the number of troops in Afghanistan as well overall. So the Republicans face a one real dilemma on foreign policy that they can't really attack the Democrats and Obama for being <coughs> soft on national security. That was always the trump card for the Republicans, from Reagan 
through to George W. Bush in the 2004, you Democrats will make America weak internationally. They can't play that card any longer. What I was really trying to say, I think, very quickly, was that um, Obama raised expectations to such a high level, however, and maybe he had to. I mean, after we, we, should, we do want politicians to raise hopes. I mean, do we want a miserable politician to go out and say, by the way, the next four years are really going to be awful. <laughs> you know, we want somebody who's got a hope, who provides a vision. And Obama did precisely that. And I think he has suffered from, if you like, the, the, the in inevitable collapse of expectations and hopes. And maybe four years is, is, far too, is, not, is not long enough to, to solve them. If he, however, gets the White House, he's going to have to carry Congress as well. Because if he can't carry Congress as well, he's going to have huge problems carrying through his legislative program. Uh, but anyway, but anyway, thanks for that question. On the, on the issue of polarization, you mean domestic polarization, I think, yeah. Um, this is very interesting. I mean, to me, who first went to the States in 85, as I said, to San Diego, then the 80s, to other, to other wonderful American universities like College of William & Mary, you know, to see America today, it, it does strike me as a highly polarized society, yeah, as a, as a highly polarized political debate. I mean, now, who, who is to blame? Well, I don't know. Is it the 1960s sex, drug, and rock and roll? Is that all to blame? Well, I don't know. I enjoyed the 1960s. Um, so, sorry about that. Uh, <coughs> I only did the third thing, by the way. <coughs> um, rock and roll. Um, uh, some would say basically there's been, there's been a cultural war and it goes back to the 1960s you know, the great culture war the, great, the liberal overturning of fundamental American apple pie kind of values occurred in the 60s feminism, the emergence of gay politics blah blah blah, the breakdown of the single the normal kind of one guy goes out to work one woman works, stays at home two, two kids smiling with nice teeth you know, the, all those fundamental transformations of brought about a different kind of politics within the United States. There's also been a huge revolution inside the Republican Party. I mean, actually, I did know a lot of Republicans in the 1980s, and these became basically the, the Bush senior Republicans of that generation of World War II, Cold War kind of Republicans, but basically realist in political outlook, um, you know, very rich, but very kind of nice, civilized, these Episcopalians largely, you know. Um, there's been clearly a revolution inside the Republican Party, uh, whether it's a Christian fundamentalist takeover, revivalism, I don't know. It's, it is, but it has created, I, I, I don't know if you agree with what I'm arguing, it's, a, it's an extraordinary polarization, where it, and this has real problems for getting anything done. Because on one side, you, you can't build consensus in Congress now, because Republicans will always vote against anything Barack Obama proposes, because he's Barack Obama and a Democrat, and no doubt the reverse would reverse. I mean, remember all the attacks on Clinton by the Republicans in the 1990s? Well, the Democrats got their revenge on George W. Bush up to 2008. So I'm afraid I, I don't have a, a straightforward, easy way out of that one. Something fundamentally profound has altered the nature of the American political debate and the nature of that American narrative, where in fact very few seem, at least as I see it, for, as an outsider, but going to America with, I hope, a sympathetic voice and a, and a sympathetic ear, to find where, where the meeting point often comes now. And it doesn't seem to be there's a lot of trust on either side of that political debate, which is a huge problem for the long term, yeah. Good. Let me go upstairs. Yes. 
Let's start over there. Gentleman white t-shirt. Um, thank you. Not American. Good. From close to home. Um, two, two closely related questions. One, um, if not America to lead the world, then who? Second question, uh, if your answer to the first one were, um, well, it's going to be several countries together, yeah. do you fear uh, a sort of a breakup of, uh, uh, into, into, into different regions or different blocks again? Uh, after all, wasn't <laughs> Pax Romana far better than anything that followed it for over a thousand years? <laughs> okay, thank you. Love Let's that. continue Love that. over to this side. The lady there, yeah. Uh, hi, uh, I'm actually from Beijing, China. So, um, yeah, actually, we're actually also uh, facing the leadership change this year. Yeah. And Yeah, and I was wondering, what do you think is going to happen in the coming decade and um, uh, respect, respect to the interaction between the two, um, two great powers, China and the States? And also, you mentioned, like, um, China... It's like really envy like the soft powers the United States currently have, but um, do you see there's like possible um, political changes and ideolo ideological changes in China in the coming decade? Thank you. <laughs> All right, yeah. let's pass it on down the road. Thank you. Yep. Hi, this is Mohammad Ahmed from Pakistan, and talking specifically about the use of force by America. Mm. Well, don't you think it's something problematic for them talking about drone attacks? Suppose there's one terrorist killed in a drone attack. What about other 35 to 40 civilians being killed in that drone attack? Yep. Plus, there's a new tradi uh, yeah, tradition being followed these days for the next elections campaign since there's so much hatred for the United States in the common people. Now, political parties are using the slogan of we need to cut down the cooperation with America for the next elections. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's squeeze in one more. Sure, and, no problem. Uh, lots of people want to come in. Let's, uh, could you pass it back, please? Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Rick Bojwani, and I'm from Dubai. Uh, I had uh, slightly different questions from these guys. So my first question was... Uh, you you said that the current I mean I mean the current uh, the, the 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 dislike for the Obama administration you mean know, from 2010 2011 is basically in the American populace. Wouldn't you say the two reasons for that is one the lack of direction in Congress since 2010 and two these are the experts saying this because we've had an extended period of economic austerity and these are the same people that lived through the 1990s which is one of the greatest bull markets yeah. of modern history and two <coughs> can it be argued that the most important election this year is the congressional elections of the 113th congress because congress has really has an 8% approval rating today and obama hasn't really even hasn't really been able to pass anything through because of you know the republican stonewalling and now we call him a bad leader because he can't pass any legislation yeah the same people or a stonewalling him. Yeah. Okay, I think, I, I, let me take, take that last point first, if I could, Robert. I think I did answer that question in, in the part of answering the other questions. I said that part of the real problem that Obama has faced, at least in the second, second, his second term, sorry, uh, was in a sense he didn't control Congress any longer. Um, and the stonewalling you're talking about, I, I agree, particularly on health care. Indeed, to the point that one even pushed what is a fairly limited health care reform, let's be honest, it's a very limited health care reform, but I think a necessary one, but I'm bound to say that. Um, 
You know, it, it, it even went to the Supreme Court. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary. Uh, I mean, you know, so uh, yes, of course, the problem is not just Obama. The, you know, the problem could just equally be Congress, and it could also be equally what I, in answer to the our friend from Oklahoma, you know, the question of political polarization in the United States, the lack of trust. So it's not just institutional logjam. It is that those who cr control Congress have a, a far, rather ideological view of what they think Obama is. And Obama, and many of the Democrats, have a very kind of profoundly antithetical view to what they think the Republican Party has become. Um, <clears throat> so I, 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 I take all that on, on, on board. By the way, Obama's popularity ratings, although they're not fantastically high, are a lot better than George W. Bush's were um, in his last year. So, you know, I mean, although they were so bad, um, and he didn't have to get re-elected either, as you know. So, um, but I, I think I've answered that particular question. And question of hatred for the USA. I, I, look, I, from, in certain parts of the world, there's no doubt about that. The part of the world you come from, Pakistan, you know, uh, I don't know Pakistan personally and directly, but, I, but, you know, I take your word for it. You know, anti-Americanism has become part of a way of life, um, you know, in certain parts of the world. I mean, there's no doubt about that you know, large parts of the Middle East. Obama opened up a dialogue with the Muslim world with his speeches in Cairo and then his speech in Turkey uh, at the, to the Turkish parliament. I thought he made rather a good speech in Cairo, but all of his attempts to open up negotiations, uh, a dialogue, you know, has fallen, it seems, on deaf ears because the level, levels of anti-Americanism still remain high in very many parts of the world. Um, and, and certainly in your part of the world, I'm sure that's true. And part of the reason for that, no doubt, is, uh, is civilian casualties which have been created by drone strikes. I wasn't trying to trivialise what's going on. All I was trying to say there was that in domestic political terms, it's going to be quite difficult for the Republicans to get Obama on foreign policy for looking soft. You know, however badly it plays with the civilian population, both in Pakistan and, by the way, in Afghanistan as well, where I have friends who are out there at the moment, um, you know, one of the things which makes it so difficult to win hearts and minds of ordinary, ordinary Afghani people is simply the numbers of you know, civilian deaths caused, caused by sometimes very indiscriminate use of military ordnance. So I, I agree with, entirely with you, and it's, it's highly counterproductive, it seems to me, where you may get, as you say, one terrorist, kill a number of civilians who are completely outside of any of that, and you lose an enormous amount of soft power. If you use too much hard power too frequently, the inevitable consequence will you will lose your soft power. You will lose it. You will look like a bully, and you will look like you don't care about anybody else's lives. And that is not a good place for a legitimate, a legitimate hegemon to be. If you want to be a hegemon, you don't want to just have power. You want to be followed. You want to be respected, but at the same time, you want to be liked as well. You want to be admired, and people want to think you're the good guy. You want, they want to see you as the good guy in the world, and that is becoming increasingly difficult particularly in, in, in places that you're talking about. By the way, America is not hated in many other parts of the world. So, you know, let's get a wider perspective on this. You know, it is not, America is not hated in Europe. Uh, it's not hated in Poland. It is not hated in countries, you know, which were liberated from communism in 1989. It is not hated in China. It's certainly not hated in India. So a wider perspective when we're talking about anti-Americanism is necessary. You know, where you're sitting is not necessarily where other people are thinking. You know, if America was so hated in many parts of the world, 
why is it a quarter of a million or more students from Asia going to want to study there? You know, uh, not because of hatred of the United States or the American way of life. But you do raise a very important point there, and I, there's, I, I don't have an easy or bland or frivolous answer to that one. You're quite absolutely right. China-USA relations. Well, if I could answer that question, I wouldn't be giving a lecture here tonight. I'd be sitting next to President Hu Jintao and um, talking to the next president of China, to the People's Republic of China, that is, and to the next president of the United States, whoever that might be. Um, I, have, I have a very clear idea who might be the next leader of China. I have no idea who's going to be the next president of the United States. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? Um, look, I, I could make bland, simple, cliched answers, give a bland, cliched answer to that. There are two polarized responses to that question. One, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Rising powers lead to danger. When there's a transition from one power to another, a declining America, a rising China, guess what? More and more conflict, nasty stuff happens. This is a kind of classic realist answer. You know, prepare for the worst, therefore let's start the containment of China now. Long live India, long live South Korea, long live Japan, long live ASEAN, long live all those countries who don't like China in the region or have problems with it. Uh, that's the self-fulfilling realist dangerous outcome in my, my, my view because there's an enormous amount of areas of cooperation and mutual interest that China had in common with the United States of America. Without China, capitalism worldwide would have been in very, very rough state over the last three or four years. China has done a lot for Western capitalism over the last few years. Go and ask German manufacturers of cars. Go, 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 down, go, to, go to Bordeaux, where the top five growths in Bordeaux are now purchased 30% in China. They love China in Bordeaux. You know, ask the American consumer who's been buying Chinese goods for the last 30 years, on credit cards largely, what do they think of China? China, good, yeah. I can buy, I can afford this stuff. Um, um, if you want to kind of ever resolve the problems of North Korea, you ain't going to do it without the People's Republic of China, because it's the only country that's got any influence over North Korea, and that's not much. Um, China's too important to be ignored. And for 50 years, the United States has pursued one consistently good strategy, and that's the one towards China. It started with good old Richard Milhouse Nixon, one of the most immoral human beings that's ever lived. It went through uh, President Jimmy Carter, whom I rather like as a human being, was hopeless as a president. It continued with Reagan. It went through Bush. It went through Clinton. It got picked up by GW, and it's been picked up by Obama. There's too much at stake on both the American and the Chinese side for this relationship to sour. It's going to go through some rocky patches... We've seen some of those rocky patches over South China Sea's issues, all this talk of an Asia pivot. But I, I think this relationship is still by far, far too important to fail. It's too big to fail, if I can use that phrase. Um, the, the other question by a person who said he's not an American, well done, uh, <laughs> as they say. Um, who will take over from the United States if the United States? Actually, I don't think anybody will. Uh, yeah, I. You're. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm 110% pro-EU, and I, you know, I mean, this has been the greatest experiment in in peacemaking, prosperity-making, democracy creation uh, over the last 50, 60 years. It's done more pro democracy promotion than anything that the United States has ever done, and it's created as much prosperity as the United States has ever done. So this is really too significant to fail. All this damned Euroscepticism in this stupid country of mine annoys the hell out of me. You know, all these conservatism, some Labour Party people sitting down in Parliament wait, waiting for it to fall apart, and they think it's going to do them any good. They must be mad. Um, you know, so, but Europe cannot assume a leadership role. It can assume a partnership role, uh, as indeed can China. And I, I don't want to sound kind of, you know, 
a little bit softy softy here but actually we are going to have to work out a deal where the, the, the important players in the world one of which will be the United States another one which will be China another one which will be the European Union and, and there will be other major players in the world Brazil, Japan is still an important player in this world we're living in um, all of these countries together are going to have to form some concert you know, I mean I, I would call it a new concert of world power it, that's the only, I can see no other way we can move forward except by a concert of powers, working together. A very like, if I might go back historically, to 1945 and the origins of the United Nations. That was a notion that you would get the great powers working together in some level of concert. Not harmony, but concert, in which they could see overlapping interests, overlapping ways of solving problems together. It doesn't get rid of competition, it doesn't get rid of differences, and it doesn't solve everything. But I, that's the only way I can see for Regionalism, I, I, I kind of accept regions, but I don't think regions are, because in the end I think power does reside in states, or in state-like actors like the European Union. Yeah. Okay, last round. Who would like to... Okay, I'll come down here. There's a gentleman at the back, and then we'll come to the front here. Um, my name is Xaveria. I'm from Poland. <clears throat> and uh, I have a question because uh, I study in Lancaster in, in England, and uh, my tutors, uh, actually two of them, say that all Republican candidates in the pre-elections were basically a bad joke, and they have a really poor uh, opinion of Mitt Romney. And I was wondering... Uh, do you think there's, if Romney gets, uh, like, wins the elections, is there any policy, any area that he would be actually better than uh, Barack Obama? Okay. <clears throat> Very quickly. The gentleman here. Um, hi, I'm Eric from New York. I have a similar question kind of building off of what um, he just said. And I was wondering, do you, as an outsider, do you see much difference in the next four years depending on who gets elected in this election? Because just like you said, it's a very important election, but what is, would be the major difference of the U.S. Yeah. four years from here? Okay. All right. Fine. And the very last question goes to the front row. Thank you. I'm Mala Dutt from India. And uh, what, uh, uh, what I wanted to ask is, since the socialist approach has not worked in the U.S., and since Americans themselves think that uh, the country is on a decline, do you really think that most Americans will now prefer the second approach of asserting their power? Yeah. And if, depending upon what your answer is, would you like to guess who's going to be the new president? <laughs> okay. Where do you get these people from, Robert, to ask me all these horrible questions? Right, you're good, just me. And you've got three minutes. All right, three minutes. Uh, the, for, for our Polish friend, welcome, very wonderful. I hope you're enjoying the University of Lancaster. Fine university in a very beautiful part of the country. And you won't find many uh, UK academics who are pro Mitt Romney. It's for, it, I said earlier on, you know. Uh, we are, a, you know, most British academics, like most Europeans, to be perfectly honest. And you won't, you won't, Mitt Romney will never get a fair hearing or even a reasonable hearing in Europe, I feel, at the moment, uh, particularly after his rather stupid, inane comments about the British and the Olympics. Um, he didn't do himself any favours. I think he's actually much better than that. Uh, you know, here I am trying to make a little bit of a defence of Mitt Romney. I mean, I've heard him make some quite good speeches. I've heard him make some quite intelligent speeches. And if you want to put it bluntly, he's not an idiot. I mean, this is just stupid. And actually, even G.W. Bush wasn't an idiot. Uh, I think he was wrong, and I think he was philosophically inclined in the wrong direction. I know some of you are sceptical about what I'm saying. Um, but maybe I'm sceptical about what I'm saying. But I'm, <laughs> but I'm doing my best to sound e even-handed. Um, 
No, I, I, I think in the end the category of stupidity to try and explain complex phenomena like the Republican Party. Look, if the Republican Party were, and Mitt Romney were to win the next election, we're all going to have to live with that reality. That's the truth of the matter, because in the end, the US, in the end, in spite of its potential areas of decline and declining influence, still has more nuclear weapons, the dollar is still number one, and if you want a security problem resolved, maybe the only people you're going to be able to phone up is, is going to have an American accent at the end of the, uh, end of the telephone line. There's no point ringing up Portugal or London or Brussels and saying, can you send a few F-111s, you know. Um, it ain't going to work. So whoever becomes president of the United States, one would have to firstly respect the, 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 the wishes of the American people expressed in, democratic, in a democratic vote. Secondly, don't kind of trivialize the result. And in a sense, don't stigmatize Mitt Romney simply because he's a Republican. He will have to deal with some pretty tough problems. And once you get inside the office and you see the problems, both economic, social, domestic and international, boy, do you become pragmatic rather rapidly. You know, and the last thing on earth you start thinking about is let's have another war against Iran, you know, even though his rhetoric looks like that. You know, power through, through the ballot box has a great way of moderating people. Uh, and it will, as we will see in Egypt and, as, and we will see in other parts of the world. Um, so uh, will there be differences? Uh, answer to that, yes. Uh, and this it gets back to my philosophical kind of diatribe or my philosophical reflections at the very end about the dilemmas of American power to which there are no simple answers. You either accept and accommodate yourself to a changing world, but you have to accept that there are consequences of doing so, or you assert your power, but there are major negative consequences of doing so, as the Iraq war proved. Um, if I would say overall, I think this particular president who is now in the White House, who I think, by the way, is, is an extraordinarily bright and smart man, um, one of the brightest and smartest who's been in the White House, and there's been quite a few of them, by the way, over the years, certainly very wise, and some of them have been Republicans as well, by the way, um, quite a few of them, by the way. Um, I think there is a philosophical difference, yeah. I think that in the end, although Romney will be pulled to the centre, um, I think underneath it there, there has been a, a, what I call it, a philosophical revolution inside the Republican Party, it began with Ronald Reagan. It continued through George W. Bush, and I think it, it's still embedded in the Republican Party, which is to be tougher and harder and stronger against your enemies. Therefore, the likelihood, therefore, of him taking some kinds of actions in relationship, certainly to Iran, is greater. Um, now, I don't think I'm not saying there's no Iran problem. There is, and it's got to be dealt with. I'm not sure what the answer to it is, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, whereas I think the current president, and in a sense it gets back to my, my kind of final reflections, Robert, on uh, different philosophies of power and way to deal with it. I think this particular president, whatever he's done in Pakistan on the drones or increasing the numbers of people in Afghanistan on the ground, at least until 2014, I think this president has been quite, uh, quite cautious um, and certainly doesn't want to see any more Iraqs probably doesn't want any more Afghanistans. I don't think he thinks the American people will bear that kind of stress and strain any longer. Uh, and I think that will be the difference. The second difference, I think, will probably be in economic policy. I mean, Barack Obama is not a socialist, but he accepts that government is not the problem. <laughs> you know, uh, the Republicans think that government is the problem. 
and you know there is more of a sense of the free market fundamentalism if you like on the on the republican side or free free the belief that markets will solve problems so i do think on those two grounds in terms of the use of power and and, and the desire or at least the belief that you must use it uh, and the belief on on the economy i think is is slightly different i mean Okay, Romney may have been just using rhetoric when he visited Israel, but that's not rhetoric that Obama could have used when he visited Israel. Indeed, as we know, he's not got a very good press in Israel. Uh, and I do think that tells us quite a lot about the different attitudes to the use of power uh, by the two. So I think there are differences, yeah, and that's why this election matters. Good. I think I need to draw it <laughs> to a conclusion. Thank you all very much for turning up. Um, will you all join us before you join me in, in thanking our speaker. Will you all join us upstairs on the fifth floor of the old building? Free drink. Where the LSE Summer School welcome you all for a, a round of drinks. And I'm sure we will continue the conversation up there. Um, we'll whiz our way up in, in just a moment. Do walk up. The lifts are not very fast and don't have <laughs> much capacity. So We have the worst um, lifts in London. Yes. <laughs> so I'll See you hopefully all upstairs, but please do join me in thanking Mick Ox. <coughs>